Genesis chapter 14 this morning. 14th chapter of Genesis. How many of you are like me or like me when I was older? You get to passages of scripture that have names you cannot pronounce and you just skip them over. Be honest. So there's a guy in this chapter named Kador Laomer. I said it right. When I read the scripture just a little bit, he's going to be affectionately known this morning as Big C. Okay? Okay, so I'm warning you now so that you don't start giggling when I read the scriptures, okay? He's Big C, right? We're going to find Abram in chapter 14 right on the heels of him making this gracious, magnanimous offer to Lot. Remember, we saw him with Lot, and, and it came down to, okay, this, this, this pasture is not big enough for all our stuff. Lot, you make your choice. I'm going to make my choice after you make your choice. And Lot took all the land, according to chapter 13 and verse 12, to the east, right up to the border of Sodom. And, and when he took that, he took, he took the best land, and he took all of the best land, and he left Abram with the less desirable stuff. But what we saw was at the end of that, God kind of reaffirms his covenant with Abram, and Abram ends up back in Hebron worshiping. And that's where we left Abram last week. We left him getting tested again, having this faith walk getting tested. He gets tested again, and he passes the test. Okay? What we're going to see this morning is, is that following God will take us to places we don't necessarily want to go. Have you figured that out yet in your life? That, that being obedient to God will take you places, one that you never thought you were going to get to, both good and bad, but it will also take you to places that you're like, I don't really want to be here. I don't really want to be experiencing this. It will take you to some good and pleasant places. Sometimes it'll take you to dangerous and difficult places. And Abram comes to this difficult place, and because of this, he's used by God to rescue his nephew, and he introduces to us what I think, or who I think, is really one of the most interesting and enigmatic characters in all of the Bible, a guy named Melchizedek. Now, I'm just going to give you a warning this morning. We don't have time to preach all of chapter 14 and to do Melchizedek justice. So we're going to preach chapter 14 this morning, and then next week we're going to come back and we're going to, we're going to look in the rest of the scripture about Melchizedek. He is too good to pass up, okay? It's too good to pass up, and, and there's too much doctrine in the New Testament that comes right out of Genesis chapter 14 that we're not going to have time this morning. So we're going to do that next week. So, as we look at chapter 14, I want to point out just a couple things that are interesting. You know me, I'm a history guy. This is the first recorded war of, of all of history in the scriptures in this chapter. We have the first recorded war. Some of the guys in the room are like, oh, yeah, battle movies, yeah. Interestingly enough, in the 1970s, an archaeological dig in Syria found cuneiform tablets, that'll take you back to your world history class, cuneiform, and all of us are like, let's, let's have a little nap now. 
But they found cuneiform tablets that mention the five cities in verse 2. The five cities of the plain mentions them in the exact same order as Scripture. Folks, I just say that to say this. Can you trust your Bible for history as well? Are you sure you can? You can. You can trust your Bible for history. And so, as we read this this morning, this is not... This is not a fairy tale. This is not just a little account that God put in the scriptures like, oh, I came up with this great story to illustrate a point. No, this actually happened. This is a matter of historical record. This happened, okay? So we're going to read it here, and we're going to see how Abram goes from being this comfortable, happy camper to being the warrior uncle, (laughs) The warrior uncle who's going to go and rescue his nephew. So with that in mind, Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Big C, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Big Sea, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Big Sea and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Carnaim, and Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Shavath Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El- of Elperon, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. And Big C, king of Elam, title king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariark, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Think asphalt. Think tar. Bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Big C and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray this morning. Father, a lot of big names in this chapter, a lot of detail. It's easy to get lost in the detail and not see what it is you're trying to say to us this morning. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me a clear mind to, to, to explain well and give us hearts to receive your word this morning. I pray that we would learn the lesson of Lot and, 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 and where we choose to plant ourselves. I pray that we would learn the, the lesson of, of Abram and, and how we can avoid compromise with, with the world around us. And I pray that, that you would use us, use us in this world, Lord, to be a light for you as we, like Abram, walk through by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first 12 verses, I want you to understand this international conflict that's going on. I, wa I want you to get a, an idea of what's happening here. Verse 1 describes for, for us a four-nation confederation, okay? And it is a nation. These are four nations. You have Amraphel, who is of Shinar. That would be modern-day Iraq, okay? That area, Babylon. So you have one king, Amraphel. You got another king, Arioch, who, who is in modern-day Turkey, Okay, so, so think of this region there, and then you have this big C, Kador Laomer, who would be modern-day Iran, okay? He was the strongest, obviously, because he takes the lead in this, and then you have a fourth king named Tidal, also in that modern-day Turkey area. So you have this confederation of four kings, and they're powerful dudes, so powerful that they, they have pretty much put all these other nations around them under their authority. And they, they have forced them to pay taxes and tribute, and, and, and they have the power to back up their threats on them. So, so if they say, you owe us this much money, little country or little city, and you don't pay it up, they're going to come in and they're going to get their money one way or the other. Okay? So you got four kings here who are really, really powerful. And in verse 2, you have five kings. Now, if you have four kings in verse 1, think of big K kings in verse 1, and think of little K kings in verse 5. These guys were kings over little cities, okay? It'd be like having the king of Croton, the king of Johnstown, the king of Alexandria, and, and I can't think of another small city. Oh, Centerburg, king of Centerburg. These, these kind of little cities, little kings, right? These five kings have been under the thumb of the four kings now for, for what the Bible tells us in verse 4, 12 years. For 12 years they have been paying tribute and they've been, they've been having to give their men to go and serve in their armies and they've been having to do whatever they've been told to do and after 12 years they, they're tired. They're tired of it, okay? Think American Revolution. They're going to throw these guys off, right? Except for the fact that they don't have the willpower to really do it or the manpower. So they decide that they're done being servants to these four kings, these four kings who are part of this confederation, 
And so they just stopped paying their taxes. Now, you and I might expect that if a region of five cities who are pretty close together stopped paying their taxes, that if we were in charge of that four-nation federation, we'd just send an army to go down there, deal with them, make an example of them, right? Well, these four kings don't just do that. What they do is they cut off all of their allies first. And so what you have described in verse 4, and verse 6 and verse 7 is them basically taking a campaign from the north and coming down the eastern side of the Jordan River and wiping out every ally that these five kings could turn to. And, And then they come down around south of them and they come back up and around and now they have these five kings trapped. They have no one to turn to. They're vulnerable and they're without help. And so now in verse 8, these five kings following the king of Sodom, who is, again, a little K king, but he's the leader of this, this five city-state you know, coalition, they go out and they try to make war. Well, that doesn't work out well for them. What we see happening is in verse 10, they're in the valley of Siddim, which is down by the, down by the Dead Sea. And, and, and probably, if you've ever seen a map of the picture or, or a map of the, of the Dead Sea, there's, there's a part that looks like there's a little jut out into it where the land goes into the sea. Probably at this time, that land went all the way across and the Dead Sea was probably in two parts. That Valley of Siddim probably was that land between the two seas there. It was known for its tar pits on this little peninsula. And the four come down and they trap them there and they, they rout the five. And all of Sodom and Gomorrah, according to verse 11, and all their possessions are taken from them. So they rout them there, they go over to where, where the cities are located and they pretty much just plunder all the wealth that's there. They take all the wealth, they take all the food, they take a lot of the people and the people that are left are left with nothing. What I want you to see is the writer here tells us something really interesting. Look at verse 12, and I want you to compare it back with chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 12, where was Lot living? You can interact with me. I know it's church. You're supposed to be really quiet and everything. In chapter 13, where was he living in verse 12? He was living near Sodom, right? He he had moved near Sodom. By the time we get to chapter 14, where is he living? He's not living close to Sodom. He's living where? In Sodom. Words matter, people. When you're reading your Bible, words matter. Lot has now moved directly into Sodom. We pointed out last week, Sodom is known for its wickedness and debauchery. I'm sure Lot thought, you know what, I know Sodom's not a great place, but the land is really good. I'm not going to let Sodom drag me and my family down, and before you know it, where is Lot living? Right in the middle of Sodom. Understand it, folks, understand it. And remember, we, saw, we said this last week, God calls Lot a righteous man in the New Testament, okay? Even righteous men will be influenced by the world and will be dragged in. Even righteous men will be dragged in by the world. And now Lot is living in the middle of this terrible city. And he's a casualty of this. He's a casualty of this. 
Lot went from being a wealthy herdsman with excellent fields and pastures to a prisoner of war who had nothing. And I think it's fair to say that that was the consequence of a choice that he made, is it not? And let's understand something. Let's understand something. In life, we face a series of choices, do we not? Every choice you and I make has consequences. And they matter. Lot made a decision to get close to Sodom, thinking that he could probably resist the temptations and the pulls there, and he got sucked right in. It's a warning to us all. It's a warning to us all. Don't get sucked in. He's in the wrong place at a really, really bad time. At a really bad time. Which is another reminder to us. You and I are not immune to the events of the world going around us. Let me just illustrate it in a way that probably will get a few of you riled up. I'm sorry if it does. How many of you had any control over whether Intel decided that they were going to build their land just south of Johnstown? If you had influence, I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> Did any of us have a say in that? Is it totally going to affect our lives? It will. It's going to totally affect our lives. We are not immune. Just because, just because you're, you're, you're a follower of Christ, just because you're, you're trying to do things the right way, you are not immune to the events of the world going around you. Lot was not immune to this. And so now, now that we see this international conflict and we see the fallout of this, I want you to see how Abram comes to Lot's rescue. I want you to see Abram. Look at verse 13. One who escapes comes and tells Abram, the Hebrew, which is interesting. Why is Abram named the Hebrew here? It's the first time he's called the Hebrew. A lot of people speculate that this was an account that was handwritten and preserved over time and given to Moses so that Moses had a very historical account here. And so as Moses is recounting this account that's been given to him, He's living, says he's living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. We learned something interesting about Abram here. Abram was a good neighbor, wasn't he? Abram made friends of the people who lived around him. What's interesting, though, is Abram wasn't on Big C's radar. He wasn't on Big C's radar, was he? Big C would have been at the most 20 miles away from where Abram was camped. At the most 20 miles away. He escaped the wrath of the confederation. And here's, here's a, now a choice that Abram has to make. Just think about it. If we're, if we're living here in Johnstown and there's a major military offensive that goes 20 miles to the north of us here just ravaging Marengo... Go ahead, you can chuckle at that. And then moves into Mount Vernon. How many of us would be tempted just to lay low and just like not draw any attention to ourselves? How many are with me on that? I, I would be tempted to lay low, right? Abram's presented with a dilemma here. In verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, that's all he needed to hear. This, is, this involves family. All of a sudden, now it becomes personal to Abram, doesn't it? It becomes personal. And so he had escaped the wrath of Big C. 
And he realizes that Lot is in this position because Lot made a really bad choice. How many of you as family members have ever thought about another family member who made a bad choice? Well, I guess that's the consequences you get. Don't come asking me for help. Anybody been there? Abram's not that kind of guy, though, is he? Abram had been foolish in his past before, too, hadn't he? Actually, his foolishness had gotten Lot in trouble, hadn't it? When he took him to Egypt. Someone wrote this, and I love this. Faith makes us independent, but it doesn't make us indifferent. Let me say that again. Faith makes us independent, but it doesn't make us indifferent. Just because we trust God and we're different from a lot of the people around us doesn't mean that we can't care about people who are going through suffering. And in fact, if you are truly a follower of God, you ought to care about the people around you going through suffering. And so now, the shepherd patriarch becomes the warrior uncle. And he must have been a really good neighbor to these guys because these allies decide to go with him. Tells us a lot about Abram and the influence that he has. Obviously, his worship of God, obviously the way he lived his life was a testimony in such a way that when Abram had, had a problem in his life that he needed to go rescue somebody, these guys are like, you know what, if this is good enough for Abram to be a part of, I'm signing up and going with Abram. And so verse 14, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them. That's only from his household. He has he has these other neighbors, and they have their forces, and they combine, and they go out. And so they go after, they go after Lot. Historians have tried to pick this apart and say there's no way, there's no way that this can be a true tale. There's no way that 318 men can take on these four powerful kings and rout them and get the people back. But, but here's something that historians don't know that you and I know. Didn't our God take Gideon, who had 30,000, and take his troops down to 300? And did he not rout the Midianites with 300? You see, this isn't about Abram and his military might or his strategy. This is about how our God intervenes whenever we walk by faith. And so he goes in verse 15. And he pursues them as far as Dan, verse 14, and then verse 15, he even goes farther north, north of Damascus, and he gets it all, and he brings it back in verse 16. He brings back Lot, he brings back all of Lot's stuff, he brings back the women and the people who have been taken captive. Now, I don't expect you to be an expert on military etiquette in this, but according to military etiquette, all those things that Abram plundered, who did those belong to now? belonged all to Abram, didn't it? By right, he could say, you now serve me. I am your benevolent, I am your new benevolent king. You now serve me. You don't have to serve Big C and his guys anymore, but you're going to serve me. And he had every right to do it, didn't he? I want you to see, I want you to see what Abram does, and I want you to see a contrast between two kings here. Verse 17, so he returns after being Big C and the other kings, and he comes to the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and you're like, where is the valley of Shava, king's valley? It is one of the most well-known valleys in all of scripture. 
We, in the book of Luke, encountered the Valley of Shava, although we didn't call it that. We call it the Kidron Valley. The Valley of Shava is, is the valley that lies just to the east of Jerusalem. It's the valley that lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. It's the King's Valley. Okay? And so he comes back to this place. And you, we have to be asking ourselves, this isn't your home, Abram. Why are you coming here? Well, we find out why he's coming there in verse 18. There's a guy there who's the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that's an interesting, interesting name. Means king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness who is the king over Salem, which is the city of peace. <laughs> that's, that's what Salem means, city of peace. And so we have the king of righteousness who sits on the throne of the city of peace, and Abram comes back because he wants to meet with Melchizedek. He has something he wants to do. Abram is coming to bring him something. We're going to see that in just a few seconds. But before he can even bring him anything, Melchizedek comes out. And look at verse 18. He feeds Abram and his soldiers. Question for you. Did the king of Salem have any skin in this game? No. Salem was not touched by what was happening here by Big C and his, and his other fellow kings there. The Salem had been totally bypassed, just like Abram had been totally bypassed. And now you have the king Melchizedek coming out and he's feeding Abram and all his people. And we get this little tidbit here in verse 18. He was a priest of God Most High. Interesting, isn't it? If you've read Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 13, has there been any kind of priesthood established? Is there any kind of priesthood established? No. In fact, we have, we have no Moses and Aaron until we get to the book of Exodus when God establishes priesthood, right? And so here we have a guy who we have to assume that God has designated as his priest, right? Not only does he bring him food, he brings a blessing out to him, and he says, blessed be Abram by God Most High. It's an interesting title that he gives him. The, the name there, God Most High, is El Elyon. He doesn't know him as Yahweh yet, but just in a few short verses, Abram is going to introduce him to Yahweh, the great I Am. He recognizes God as creator and possessor of all. He has a good understanding of who this God is. You see it there in verse 19. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And then he continues in verse 20, and he says, Blessed be the God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He understands this, that there is a powerful God who has been at work here, and he wants to praise him, and he wants to worship him. Abram's faith walk has taken him to a difficult, difficult place. He's had to go and be in a battle that wasn't even a battle of his choosing, but notice how God has used that now to make his name even greater. So Abram does something that's really interesting here. It says here in verse 20 that Abram, not because he's told to do it, not because he's required to do it, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything, the tithe. How many of you had been taught that tithing is just an Old Testament idea that was in Moses' law? How many of you have been taught that? It's all part of Moses' law, tithing. 
Again, has Moses, is Moses even a twinkle in his mother's eye who's not even a twinkle in her mother's eye? No. Here we have God putting in Abram's mind, hey, you give a tenth. You give a tenth to this guy. Does he owe this guy any tribute or anything? No. This is purely an act of worship on Abram's part. And so you have Abram meeting the king of Salem, and, and he performs this act of worship, recognizing that God has given him the victory, and he wants to give it back to the priest of the Lord as a sign showing God, yes, I appreciate what you've done for me. I worship you. You've given me the victory. Contrast that with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom look, is looking to make a business deal here. You see it there in verse 21? Again, Abram as the conquering general, the conquering king, does he have the right to keep everything, including the people? He has the right to keep it all. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, hey, we can work this out, right? You give me the people and you keep all the possessions. Because here's what the king of Sodom knows. As long as I have people, I can tax them, right? I can build my wealth back. But he thinks he's making a generous offer here to Abram. And this is in the presence of the king, the king of Salem as well. And he's listening to this. In verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. He adds a name there. To Yahweh El Elyon. Whose benefit do you think that was for? It's for the king of Salem's benefit. That's who this God is. Yahweh El Elyon. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of earth and heaven, affirming again what, what the king of Salem has said, Melchizedek. Like, you're right, he is the possessor. And what this is, is a faith-filled rejection. It's a completely faith-filled rejection. Abram could have kept all this wealth for himself, and he says this, Verse 23, I've made a promise to God that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Knowing what we know about Sodom, would the king of Sodom be tempted to say that? He would. Is Abram here too proud to take a handout from somebody here? Or is Abram saying, you know what? I'm not trusting in the world's wealth. I'm trusting in Almighty God to take care of me. There's a difference there, isn't there? And what Abram is saying is, I don't need to make an alliance with you. My alliance is with somebody far greater. My alliance is with the Almighty One, Yahweh. And He's going to take care of me. And what he, what he wants to be careful of here is something that you and I need to, be, need to be careful of when we're dealing with the world. And I want you to pay attention to this. Abram is very sensitive to this. And you and I need to be sensitive to this. How we interact and do business with the world doesn't just reflect on ourselves, it reflects on the glory of our God. It absolutely reflects on the glory of our God. I'm not saying it's wrong to do business with the world. You can't buy a car or have a mortgage without doing business with the world, can you? But here's the thing, friends, brothers and sisters, we're not called to be the most shrewd business people in the world. We're called to reflect the glory of God. 
And sometimes reflecting God's glory means that we have to pass up good deals, doesn't it? This would have been a good deal for Abram. And what Abram is saying here is this, I'm not going to go through life with a closed hand, grabbing everything I can. I'm going to go through life with an open hand and give back to God and trust Him to take care of me. But notice what he does do. I told you he's a good neighbor. <laughs> he doesn't speak for his allies. If you're his allies at that moment, they're like, wait, wait a minute here, I, I think we would like some of this. He doesn't speak for them. He doesn't even speak for his servants. This is his personal conviction and his personal commitment, and he keeps it just to himself, which is another lesson for us. Our convictions as believers don't apply to even our neighbors who are not followers of Christ. Do you know that? And too often we spend our time trying to enforce our convictions on the world around us. Folks, our world doesn't need our convictions. They need our Savior, Christ. And here's what he's doing. He's saying this, verse 24, I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. In other words, this is my personal decision, but they can, they can take what's rightfully theirs. You work out your deal with them, king of Sodom. What's at stake here? Well, What's at stake here is the state of the nations, right? I mean, this, this had some major implications for the, for the geopolitical landscape at the time, right? What's at stake here? The welfare of Lot and all of his household, right? That's at stake here. We might be tempted to think that's the big thing that's at stake here. No, th there's something much greater here that's at stake, and it is the glory and worship of Yahweh as the one true and faithful God. And what we have here is Abram's actions in rescuing his kinsmen, in offering a tithe to the Lord, and in rejecting the world's, world's spoil, all reflected glory on his God. They, they all made much of his God. He was being watched. All these things made his God look good. It wasn't about Abram's reputation. It wasn't, it wasn't about, I got to get Lot, everything that belongs to him back. It's not about who's going to be the most powerful you know, king in this area. Abram at that point could have grabbed a lot of authority and power, could he have not? If he'd have just had the right political handlers with him at that time, he could have been king of the world at that point. When you think about it. It had nothing to do with that in his mind. It had everything to do about the glory and reputation of Yahweh. And so here's the thing, guys, friends. Yeah, we have to interact with the world, and the world around us, it affects the way that we live. But, but we don't have to make decisions like the world makes decisions. We don't have to react the way the world reacts. We have something far greater that's at stake here. It's not just our personal possessions. It's not just, it's not just you know, our reputations. It is the reputation of our God. And so Abram isn't all about, yes, look at me. I'm the wonderful guy who went up and rescued my nephew, and I brought back all these people who were in the same plight as him, and, and you ought to all pay me the taxes now, and you ought to look at me. I'm the guy. No, my God is a great God who gave me the victory. 
That takes faith. You know that? That takes faith. Let's be honest. With the way that our economy is, wouldn't you like to have a shrewd business deal right now that would put a, put a nice large sum with zeros in your bank account? Wouldn't we all like that? It takes faith to live in such a way and say, no, I don't need all that because all I need is what you're going to give me, God. And here's the great lie about health and wealth gospel. There would be preachers who now would finish this message like, well, here's the thing. You do that and God will bless you doubly more. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You walk by faith. You have no guarantee your bank account's going to get any bigger. In fact, it may get smaller. But your God will supply your needs. Abram has no guarantee here at this point. The only guarantee that he has is this. I'm going to give you a very large family. I don't know about you, but large families actually drain the bank account. Right? Right? Am I right, Pastor Andy? Preach. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think for a second here that Abram had this wink-wink arrangement with God and saying this, yes, I'm going to tithe all this, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to Melchizedek, and and I'm going to tell the king of Sodom to to take his deal back with him to Sodom, I don't want it. No, he didn't have this wink-wink arrangement with God like, okay, okay, Abram, wait till everybody leaves and I'm going to just hand you like this big pot of gold. No, this was total faith, people, total faith. Abram went through life with an open hand (laughs) as opposed to grabbing everything he could get. And it takes a lot of faith to do that. And if we do do that, as the followers of Christ, we make his name great. We make his name great. And that's what we're called to do. Because to bring this full circle, who's the one who's worthy? Who's the one we sang about this morning? Who's the one who's worthy? Are we the ones who are worthy? He's the one who's worthy. He's the one who deserves all the praise. He's the one who deserves all the recognition and the glory. And we get the blessing of living in a way that brings him the glory. Now next week, we're going to come back and we're going to dig into this Melchizedek dude. David wrote about him in Psalm 110. You may want to read Psalm 110 this week. David writes about Melchizedek. And basically says, hey, we haven't had a priest like him throughout all of our history, and there's going to be a priest that's going to come that's going to be even better than him, a greater Melchizedek. And then we're going to go to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this guy Melchizedek as well. Father, we are so grateful that you would grant to us faith to be able to walk like Abram walked. It's not easy, though. Not easy at all. None of us could fault Abram if he would have said, you know what, I'll I'll take your deal, king of Sodom. Or, you know what, I earned all this, I don't need to tithe it, I don't need to give it back to the Lord. God, I pray that, that we would learn these faith lessons well, so that we, like Abram, 
would walk by faith, bringing glory to you, the one who is worthy of all glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.